0: Let me tell you about my client michael dorsey he was a fine actor maybe a great actor but for every role he wanted there was a reason why he wasn't right sorry you're too tall i can be shorter no i can't use you too short oh i can be taller too moody next too old too, too stubborn you're too much trouble too tough too temperamental too pushy too difficult michael no one will hire you just watch me did he show us he auditioned for the female lead on a soap opera and became the hottest new actress in America and you know what no one knows his new identity not even the girl he's madly in love with soon everyone will know that she's Dustin Hoffman and he's Tootsie
1: that was a clip from the trailers from the 1982 movie Tootsie starring Dustin Hoffman and Jessica Lange It was directed by Sidney Pollack and made by Columbia Pictures under the supervision of its chairman and CEO Frank Price, who's also a member of the National Council on the Arts. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host Josephine Reed. As I said in part one of my interview with Frank Price, He's had a far-reaching impact on media culture in the second half of the 20th century. Last week, we concentrated on his career in television. This week, we focus on his movies. In 1978, Frank Price left Universal Television and moved to Columbia Pictures, first as president, then as chairman and CEO. He turned Columbia Pictures around, taking a struggling company and remaking it into one that produced movie after movie that swept the Academy Awards. He oversaw the production of some of the touchstone films of the 1980s, such as Kramer vs. Kramer, Das Boat, Ghostbusters, Tootsie, and Gandhi. Frank then went to Universal Pictures, where he supervised the productions of still more iconic films like Back to the Future, The Breakfast Club, and Out of Africa. Frank Price returned to Columbia as chairman and greenlighted another set of groundbreaking projects, including A League of Their Own, Groundhog Day, and Boys in the Hood. After leaving the studios in 1991, he formed his own company, Price Entertainment, and continued producing films such as Shadowland and the Tuskegee Airmen. Clearly, Frank Price knows how to get a good movie made. And that's what we'll talk about in Part 2. We pick up the conversation with Frank's move to Columbia Pictures a step that was surprising to some given his great success as president of MCA Universal Television and the grave troubles Columbia Pictures found itself in. You went to Columbia Pictures which was having issues yes. as a company. It oh, was man. not it was not doing very well.
2: There was the big scandal about financial irregularities, plus the company was in trouble. The stock was at $3 a share. And when I was trying to get out of my contract with MCA, Lou Wasserman had said to me, why would you want to leave MCA where you're one of the three guys that will inherit this company and go to a company that may not be in business six months from now? And I said, Lou, it's because I don't want to look in the mirror when I'm 65 and say, gee, I wish I had done that. I wish I had done movies. And I can't do them here. The job's already filled. Ned Tannen was doing it, you know, doing a good job at, at Universal. So I had to go somewhere else. So Lou let me out of the contract. Had I got tough with him, I never would have gotten out. But I knew that making a human appeal to him, mm, we he would listen it. to that. You know.
1: And what year was this?
2: 78. 1978.
1: So, how did you do this turnaround at Columbia? Because what you accomplished there is really astounding.
2: I had the great benefit of working for Lou Wasserman, for one thing. I had the great benefit of running Universal Television. I had made movie after movie after movie. I'd also produced shows, so I knew how to make pictures. What I hadn't made were movies, the theatrical versions. Although, by the way, while at Universal, I had developed for television the two sequels to Airport because I couldn't get additional money from ABC. So I turned them over to the theatrical arm and said, here are your sequels, which I, I had thought of both of them on flights around. Uh, but anyway, going to Columbia, I benefited from the fact that I spent a long time as a reader and story editor, and I know story pretty well. So one of my first hits was Blue Lagoon, which Randall Kleiser had come to me, and he wanted to remake a failed movie. I liked the concept, but I liked the fact that it was $4 million. I could make it for $4 million in Fiji, and we had no money. I
1: was about to say that was the other problem there.
2: Right. I couldn't commit further than six months out because we were running such a tight ship at that point. So I was scrambling to get things, but fortunately that became one of the most profitable movies anybody's made in the sense that production costs were very low, and I think we did 60-some million dollars in box office, so we did well on that one. And then I had a very good relationship with Mike Ovitz, which was good because... I was the new guy in motion pictures.
1: And Michael Ovitz was CAA then, Creative Artists Agency. CAA
2: wasn't in motion pictures. Mike was trying to break into motion pictures with his agency. Well, we were the television guys, so uh, he and I hit it off well. I was able to help him. He helped me. That was part of it. I also found Columbia was vastly overstaffed with a lot of producers. I wanted to make deals with directors like Sidney Pollock and Ivan Reitman, and so I sort of cleaned out a lot of the producers. I formed a very good relationship with Ray Stark, who was a terrific producer and became a terrific friend. We finally got a lot of things happening. One, because of my background with Wasserman and that, I knew that we had to have certain deals. I saw HBO, the way MCA saw NBC, it's somebody you make a deal with. So we made a huge HBO deal. We needed money. They needed movies. The studios tended to be disdainful of them. I wasn't. I was, let's make a deal. So we made that deal. I also got a deal in place with RCA, VCR. What was the business going to be like down the line? Were you going to have video discs? Were you going to have videotape? Was it going to be a rental business? Was it going to be a sale business? What, what was it? We didn't know. So we made this deal. We thought we needed a record company, and we knew we needed somebody with cash. So RCA put up $100 million in advance, domestic $100 million foreign, and we had a very good joint deal That we had an out in 10 years because we figured we don't know the business. We'll get out of it in 10 years. But meanwhile, we've got cash. And you could make movies like... We were able to make movies then.
1: Well, like Kramer versus Kramer and Tootsie and Ghostbusters and Gandhi. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. You were sweeping Academy Awards left, right, and center.
2: We were. We were the gear. I remember in particular, we had Das Boot. Was that Gan- yours? Yes. Gandhi and Tootsie. And I, was, I remember being at the Directors Guild because the three directors, Wolfgang Peterson and Dickie Attenborough and Sidney Pollack, were at my table. So I was having to be absolutely neutral as the awards were coming up. Whoever won won. That's hard. And even in reacting to success, I had to make sure that I didn't go overboard because I had the two other guys. To console.
1: (laughs) I would think part of what you also need to do as head of a studio is you say no a lot. I know you say yes, and that's fantastic, but you really have to say no to a lot of people a lot of the time. That's the main part of the job. That would be difficult.
2: Right. You destroy people's dreams. Yeah. Not easy. No. Not easy. It doesn't get any easier as you're doing it, but, you know, you have to be basically nice but cold-hearted about it.
1: I interviewed a writer who I think he was 55 or so when he published his first book, and it became quite a prize winner. And he had gotten, you know, 25, 30 rejections and just kept sending it out. I said, God, that's a lot of rejection. He said, I worked as a screenwriter. 99% of everything you suggest is vetoed. You just learn to roll with it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say to writers, the most important thing is persistence. Don't give up. I've seen mediocre writers who just wouldn't give up go on and become very successful writers. And I've seen highly talented people who just couldn't stand no, yeah. and therefore they'd run away.
1: There are two movies I really do want to talk about, pretty specifically, Gandhi, a very important movie, very pathbreaking in very many ways, and brilliantly directed, brilliantly acted, brilliantly written, but also brilliantly marketed, because when the film was first proposed, I think the criticism about doing it was 50% of the people are not going to know who this man is.
2: Nobody under 40 would know who he was, which was true. And I was given the other line, which is nobody's going to care about a little brown man wandering around in a diaper. But we did undertake it. I mean, Dickie Attenborough did a great job on it. And the financing came from a company Jake Ebert's set up And we persuaded Jake that it would be in their interest and ours to hold the movie for a year because we had a lot of work to do. Number one, we worked on the uh, arts and leisure section of the New York Times. Uh, Fortunately, they liked what they saw, what we screened for them. And we were able to get six major articles out of them over the next year on various aspects of India, Gandhi, so on. That's we, a feat. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, if you don't have the movie, none of these things happen.
0: I am a Muslim, and a Hindu, and a Christian, and a Jew, and for all of you. He offered the world a way out of madness.
2: Men honored him. An empire feared him. A nation worshipped him.
1: Long live! Ahead.
2: Albert Einstein said, Generations to come will scarce believe that such a one as this, ever in flesh and blood, walked upon this earth. Gandhi, a world event. All boils down do you have the goods or not. We had it. So the important thing was to sell it properly, sell it right. So the other thing we did was to... Work out an arrangement with the National Educational Association to put into classrooms throughout the country information about the Gandhi story. Because we felt that we'll start with schools and make the young people aware. They'll even make, they may be talking to their parents saying, have you heard of Gandhi? So on. So that educational thing went on. Then we carefully schedule when we would open the picture. We wanted to open it on Christmas Day where the adults would be available. We'd open it on a very limited basis, platforming, so-called, so that we're not in many theaters at that point. We would open on that day very close to the time of the Academy Award nominations. What we were wanting is open it, get our reviews, get our Academy Award nominations, which we then trumpet in our advertising. And then, of course, we roll up to the actual Academy Awards. We wouldn't depend on them, but we'd be prepared for another burst there. So it all worked because we swept the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. What was great about it was that we used our U.S. performance to really sell the movie in the rest of the world because selling a film that swept the Academy Awards, that had all this publicity in that, gets a lot easier to uh, do good business.
1: The other film I really would want you to touch on is Boys in the Hood. Yeah. Because that came out of nowhere. No one had heard of John Singleton. It was an unknown writer about an inner city, but an inner city that didn't have white faces in it, which was very, very unusual when that movie came out. It's 21 years ago now. But we still see that now if you think about the book The Help. Ah. It's It's a fine book, a fine movie, but we still have the white woman who's really front and center. And Boys in the Hood told a very different story from a very different point of view.
2: Backstory, I had been experimenting for quite a while on what would work with the black audience. I'd had a big success with a movie called Stir Crazy, which, you know, was Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And I remember being delighted at the test screening we had in San Francisco because the movie was drawing an audience who was half black, half white. Everybody was in stitches. They couldn't hear the dialogue. So I loved it. I mean, it was clear we had a big hit. So I had that experience in my mind. We did Soldiers Story and that I saw it drew a middle class black audience and a liberal white audience. And that meant we did about $12 million in our film rental. $8 million production costs. So we made money, but it was modest. I kept seeing that. I saw what The Malcolm X story It drew that same audience. It wasn't a young black audience. So I had returned to Columbia, second time I ran Columbia, and Amy Pascal and another young woman, Stephanie Elaine, came to me for my weekend reading. Amy said, it's very uncommercial, but we think it's good, we'd like you to read it. So I took the script on Boys in the Hood, Um, along with some other reading. When I read it, it was just terrific. The movie was very clear. It was there. It was a great insight into the inner city, what was going on. And it reminded me of a movie I had seen when I was fairly young, which was The Bicycle Thief. That came to my mind because I was thinking, I was trying to figure how people would relate. And I was saying, well, I related to this story of post-World War II Rome, and a kid there, it's the same sort of thing. You, you're relating to other people, so they may have different backgrounds than that. So I felt people could relate to it if we handled it right. So Monday in the studio, I said, tell me more about this. And they said, well, he wants to direct it. and John Singleton, the writer. Uh, John Singleton, who's, I don't know, 21 years old, out of USC film school, didn't take directing, took writing. there, And I said, well, Set up an appointment, have him come in. When he came in, personal young guy, I asked him how he would shoot the helicopter sequence. What was his approach to that? And what he said was, I don't need a helicopter. He said, it's night, I can do it with lights and sound. And I thought, well, he thinks practically anyway, because clearly if we were going to make it, it had to be made for a price. So I, I talked about actors, and he had some people in mind. So I gave him a camera and some money and said, shoot some of them and bring it in and show them to me. So what he brought back was Ice Cube, and that was the first I looked at that, and I said, wow, because he jumped off the screen. It was Cuba Gooding and some of the others he couldn't shoot, but I knew who they were. In South Central L.A. beneath. let's
0: do the local thing.
2: It's tough to beat the streets. What am I supposed to do? Fool roll up, try to smoke me? Think, young brother, about your future. You no know way you sweat me. You're my only son, and I'm not gonna lose you to no fool. Baby, hey, don't worry, but I have
0: to take care of myself. Trey wanted to work his way up. Trey is a grown man now. He is not a little boy anymore. I heard you like Mr. GQ smooth man. Maybe some of what you gotta rub off on him.
2: I decided that even though he was inexperienced, the thing I've always believed with writers is they've already directed it once. If you've written the script, you have directed it. I knew if we put a good production guy with him, that that would be a start. So there was one that had worked with Rob Reiner, I think his name is Steve and. I felt he would be good because he was good on production, but he also was good at catering to understanding the artistic needs of a sensitive director. He had done it with Rob, so therefore, right guy to be on. He wouldn't try to crush the new guy. So anyway, we got it together. We looked for where we could shoot it. The only place we could do it was in L.A., I could have made it a little cheaper elsewhere, but it wouldn't have been the same picture. The problem in shooting it in L.A. is you're right under the nose of the Union, so you're going to be Union. And you're now shooting in south-central L.A. Some problems that way, but I also wanted you know, as much of the crew to be black as possible. Anyway, we shot it. In our minds, if the picture turned out as well as it looked on paper, we would take it to Cannes. Because the objective would be to put a different label on it. We didn't want to make a movie that would be labeled an inner-city black movie. The problem with the script, everybody turned it down. It was a good writing sample, but nobody wanted to make it because they thought it's an inner-city movie. It'll have a limited audience. I I think we can handle this so it attracts a white audience. And one way, you go to Cannes. And you make a big deal out of it. And you make a big international deal out of it, which we did. By the way, our first test screenings were fabulous. We did them on the lot because we wanted to keep this quiet. We needed it controlled. And uh, that was very interesting. I sat in the middle of the audience. And it was a very different kind of screening because there was much more audience participation They reacted to the movie. They were with the movie. They were warning people. So, you know, I learned from it. But anyway, we decided we did have the movie. We took it to Cannes. We got some very good reviews. In Cannes, what we did was we took some billboards and put graffiti on them. It didn't say anything about Boys in the Hood, but we just had graffiti. Then we gave a rap party. They had not heard of rap in France at that point. It was new. Ice Cube came over. We weren't in the main competition. We were in something, director's cut or whatever it was, but we were the most in-demand ticket. There were 700 seats in the theater when we screened and there were 700 people in addition outside waiting to try to get in. Word had gotten around that this was a picture to see. So uh, the can thing gave it, I think, a visibility that it ultimately after the picture finished its run, it had attracted about half white and half black.
1: And an Oscar nomination for John Singleton oh, as yes. director.
2: Youngest person nominated.
1: And so. wasn't he the first African-American director yes. nominated? Yes. Extraordinary.
2: Extraordinary.
1: So, uh, and a great film.
2: He did a fabulous job on it.
1: Looking at the trajectory of your career, and I know you've said this, but it's so clear from your work as well, you really look at women and you look at race. Those are two two touchstones you keep coming back to.
2: Yes, those are two... I think things about contemporary society that I think are most important, and they have fascinated me, so that's been true whether it was uh, what Out of Africa was a story of a woman ahead of her time and how she had to cope with that. League of Their Own was another one that I enjoyed doing, you know, Penny Marshall. I don't think that would have gotten done without me. I happen to have a particular sensibility, and I don't know that you know they would get done in, in Hollywood normally. It's like Barry Diller came up to me after we screened for an industry audience out of Africa. And he said, Frank, I thought you were crazy making this. And he said, I love the movie. It's a wonderful movie. I'm glad you made it.
1: Or even a movie like Tootsie, which is so funny. And at the same time, really does talk about women's issues in a way that anybody can hear them.
2: Yes. I don't want to lecture, but I like to point out things you see Tootsie, I would say there are lessons in there for society. That's been around a long time, so perhaps society has learned some of them.
1: But that's the fun thing about Tootsie. Even if society has, it's still fun seeing that movie.
2: I had a fun time at one flight on my way to New York. Tootsie was playing on the plane, and I spent the flight actually watching the people's faces as they were watching the movie. You know, I knew the movie pretty well, so I didn't need to watch it But watching their faces was a joy.
1: Well, that's one of those movies where, obviously, it was so well cast with Dustin Hoffman, with Jessica Lange, and Charles Durning. But Sidney Pollack was brilliant in that film. And so was Bill Murray. Those small parts were so beautifully cast.
2: Both came about. In unusual ways. Number one, uh, there was a lot of fighting that went on between Sidney Pollack and Dustin Hoffman in the making of the picture for a variety of reasons. Too long to explain. but
1: Some of which I have a feeling we've seen played out in the movie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But since there was such a struggle going on between them, Dustin wanted Sidney to be an actor in the picture. He basically wanted to show Sidney up, get him out from behind the camera and take him on. So Sidney had come to me and said, look, I've got my hands full with this. I don't want to act also. But he said, I also don't want to get him offended. So I said, Sidney, do it. No one will hire you.
0: Oh, that's not true, man. I bust my ass to get a part right, and you know I do. Yes, and you bust everybody else's ass, too. That's what you do. A guy's got four weeks to put on a play. You think he wants to sit and argue about whether or not Tolstoy can, can walk when he's dying or walk when he's talking or sing oh, please, when he's walking. Oh, that was two and years ago, and that guy is an idiot. They can't you- all be idiots, Michael. You argue with everybody. You've got one of the worst reputations in this town, Michael. Nobody will hire you. Are you saying that nobody in New York will work with me? Oh, no, that's too limiting. Nobody in Hollywood wants to work with you, either. I can't even send you up for a commercial. You played a tomato for 30 seconds. They want a half a day over schedule because you wouldn't sit down. Yes, it wasn't logical. You were a tomato!
2: So he did it, and uh, Dustin's plot failed because Sydney was so good. He was so good. Bill Murray, there was a restaurant in New York, Steakhouse, and I had taken a room and had a birthday party for my wife, Catherine, and... I invited to it all her favorite people, Sam Cohn, Sidney Pollock, Dustin, Bill Murray. It was a fun group, and Dustin and Bill got acquainted, and Dustin was the one who started talking to Bill, you got to be in the movie, you got to play my uh, roomie. We went from there, we worked out a deal, because I couldn't afford Bill's normal fee, so Bills in it uncredited. I forget what I paid him, but we weren't supposed to use him in the uh, advertising. We cheated on that a little, but we made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> he was wonderful in it, and uh, you know, uh, with Bill, uh, some of the best lines from him are the ones that he improvises.
1: And, and just finally, in closing, you've been so good at looking ahead and seeing what's coming down the pike from television, moving to film, from film, thinking about HBO. What do you see now?
2: It's a pretty murky picture right now. Uh, There's a lot happening, and I think the entertainment world has been changing since I got into it, and generally, whatever it's evolved into has been somewhat better. So, uh, you know, I've got a son who works for uh, Amazon, uh, and he's head of Amazon Studios, and they're developing television shows and movies, and they're doing it in a new fashion. They are reaching out to the world for people with. Creative desires It reminded me of the fact that when I was working at CBS in the story department, one of the things I did was I volunteered to read the slush pile, and in the slush pile was an envelope from Cincinnati, and I read a good script in it. This was before I was a reader. I gave it to one of the regular readers, and I said, "I think this is pretty good." It was from a guy named Rod Serling, who had just sent in the script. So. We got him an an assignment on Lux Video Theater. So that was the start of his career.
1: And the rest, as they say, is history.
2: (laughs) Frank Price, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having me.
1: It was a pleasure. That was writer, producer, executive, and a member of the National Council on the Arts, Frank Price. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campi is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Going to the City of Emeralds by Francesco Letera from the CD Absolute Balance. Use courtesy of Creative Commons and found on WMFU's Free Music Archive at freemusicarchive.org. Excerpt from the trailers to Tootsie, Gandhi, and Boys in the Hood. Use courtesy of Columbia Pictures. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link in our podcast page. Next week, artist Jenny C. Jones. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.